Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe. Welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, October 15th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of this special edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in our program, I will be bringing you our extended uh, Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have a focus on the current siege of Gaza, which has killed over 2,000 Palestinians. We will examine the global risk of an escalation and expansion of the burgeoning war in West Asia, which could easily spill over into other sections of uh, the region, as well as North Africa. In addition, we look into the overall impact of the United States foreign policy in Palestine and throughout West Asia and North Africa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Um Kalsum, the revolutionary voice of Egypt. This is taken from a live concert in 1966. Let's listen in.
تتبدل غاصنا واللي جينا عيشوا أحلى من اللي بدنا أحلى من اللي بدنا أحلى من اللي بدنا
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the revolutionary music, uh, Voice of Egypt, uh, Um Kalsum, uh, at a live concert in 1966 in Cairo, Egypt. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, October 15th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire report. Our focus uh, has been on the siege of Gaza uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces, backed up politically, economically, uh, militarily, and diplomatically uh, by uh, the United States government and other uh, Western imperialist governments. In recent um, reports uh, coming out of Gaza, the Palestinian Ministry of Health says that 80% of Gaza's population is denied access to medical services. This uh, humanitarian crisis is compounded by the fact that over 400,000 Palestinians have been displaced, and the death toll on the first eight days of war has exceeded the total number of deaths in the 51-day Israeli war on Gaza in 2014. Yet the resistance continues. Palestinian uh, Ministry of Health says that the number of Palestinians killed and wounded in the Israeli war on Gaza rose to 2,670 killed, 9,600 wounded, and the West Bank, 55 have been killed, and more than 1,200 have been wounded. In other updates, uh, the Israeli Channel 12 uh, reported that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu invited U.S. President Joe Biden to pay a solidarity visit to Israel. The FBI reports inside the United States that it has observed an increase in threats against Jewish and Muslim communities inside the United States. French President Emmanuel Macron, in a call with his Iranian counterpart, Ibrahim Raisi, warned against expanding the conflict in West Asia. The Israeli uh, FM uh, network said, we expect great interest from the Vatican in the suffering of Israelis. The Israeli president uh, establishing a humanitarian corridor in Gaza is among the priorities of the talks with uh, Secretary of State Blinken. The Israeli army spokesman said that the Lebanese Hezbollah is escalating on the northern border under Iranian direction and is exposing Lebanon to danger. 
Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich said that Israeli leaders and security establishment failed to protect its citizens. He added, quote, we must admit with pain and with our heads bowed that we have failed, unquote. United Nations forces in southern Lebanon announced that its headquarters in the town of Nakur was hit by a missile and that it is working to verify its source. More than a thousand Palestinians are under the rubble of destroyed buildings in Gaza. Five Palestinians were killed in an Israeli bombing on Khan Yunus, south of the Gaza Strip. Two uh, Palestinians were killed and nine wounded in another bombing that targeted a house in Rafah, south of the Gaza Strip. United States and Qatar are working on a deal to release children and women detained by the Islamic resistance movement, Hamas. The Palestinian Ministry of Health in the Gaza Strip reported that the death toll has risen to 2,670. The number of wounded has risen to 9,600. Israeli Chief of Staff uh, Hersey Halavi told the soldiers deployed on the Gaza front that the army will enter the Gaza Strip and will reach every, quote, terrorist, unquote, as he described them. United States President Joe Biden said that his country is working with its partners in the region to ensure that humanitarian supplies reach civilians in Gaza and to prevent the conflict from expanding. While his administration announced the appointment of a special envoy for humanitarian affairs. According to the Al-Qasim brigades, we bombed Ashkelon and uh, Metavihim in the Gaza envelope today. A missile fired at Israeli reconnaissance aircraft over Khan Yunus in the southern Gaza Strip took place today. The shelling of Ashkelon was a response to the targeting of civilians in Gaza. United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said upon concluding a trip to six Middle Eastern countries that Israel has a right to defend itself but must avoid harming civilians. Janine Battalion of the Al-Quds Brigade said we targeted the illegal Jewish settlement in Marav with intense and concentrated bullets. A new volley of rockets was fired towards the city of Tel Aviv prompting sirens throughout the area. Rockets were also fired towards Kibbutz Nahal Ozan, the Kisafim settlement uh, near uh, the Gaza border. The military arm of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement said in a statement, uh, quote, the Zionist enemy has exceeded all religious, legal, and humanitarian limits, but without affecting our will in any way. The Zionist enemy continues with this desperate attempt to displace our people, but their answer was steadfastly on their land. We tell the enemy, we have defeated you inside your own regime. What do you think we will do to you if you come to Gaza by your own choice? We reassure our people and the world that we will remain steadfast in the face of the enemy's crimes. We have no other option but victory. Now, according to an Israeli medical source, eight were wounded, including four in serious condition in Western Galilee. The Jordanian Foreign Minister Amin Safadi told Al Jazeera that uh, displacing Palestinians from their land is a red line. 
Israeli warplanes continue to launch airstrikes on various areas of Gaza City. Quoting a Lebanese security source, Hezbollah targeted Israeli army positions in the western Galilee. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi told the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken that Israeli reaction went beyond self-defense. Israeli death toll has risen to 1,400, and the number of wounded are 3,500. And these are some of the um, headlines and lead stories uh, in uh, the Pan-African Newswire for today. And that's going to conclude our Pan-African Newswire segment. If you'd like to, of course, uh, read more uh, from the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to the Pan-African Newswire, which is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the globe. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, October 15th, 2023, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Good night. 
the voice of uh, Liz Wright uh, covering uh, the classic uh, track uh, written by Neil Young, Old Man. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, October 15th, uh, 2023. And dominating the news uh, over the last week or so has been the escalating offensive uh, by the Palestinians against the settler colonial regime uh, in Israel that is backed uh, in many ways uh, by uh, the United States government in Washington, D.C. And uh, there's been much uh, discussion about a purported uh, imminent uh, ground intervention uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces into Gaza Strip. The deaths uh, have largely occurred as a result of aerial strikes on civilian populations uh, in Gaza by the Israeli Defense Forces. There's also been shelling uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces into the Gaza Strip. Nonetheless, there has been um, rocket fire. Uh, there have been, of course, starting last uh, Saturday, a military intervention uh, by the Al-Qasim Brigades, uh, the Islamic Jihad, and other resistance forces uh, based in the Gaza. Unrest has spread uh, to the West Bank and East Jerusalem. There's also been uh, exchanges, weapons, uh, fire uh, between uh, the resistance forces in southern Lebanon, Hezbollah. And, of course, uh, demonstrations have taken place all over uh, West Asia, North Africa, indeed the world, uh, against the Israeli Defense Forces and in solidarity with the Palestinian uh, liberation struggle. Yesterday, in central London and other areas uh, throughout Britain, tens of thousands of people marched in solidarity with Palestine. We're going to listen to an analysis of uh, the potential risk uh, that uh, the Israeli Defense Forces will face uh, in a much-touted ground invasion into Gaza. Let's listen uh, to uh, this report. What are the military risks of an Israeli ground offensive in Gaza? The Israeli army says it's ready for the next stage of its war on the Strip and it's massing hundreds of thousands of troops. But what does Israel stand to gain from an incursion into the territory? This is Inside Story. Hello again, I'm James Bays. Israel has gathered hundreds of thousands of troops ahead of its ground invasion of Gaza. But Hamas is likely to be ready for them. Tens of thousands of fighters have had time to prepare traps and ambushes. With the conflict about to enter a dangerous new phase, fears are growing for civilians caught in the crossfire, along with concern the war might spread beyond the Strip. We'll go to our panel of guests in just a few moments, but first, Fintan Monahan has this report. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had a question for the tens of thousands of troops massed along the border with Gaza. Are you ready for what comes next? A ground invasion appears inevitable. In the past week, the Israeli military has dropped thousands of bombs on Gaza. And Netanyahu says it's only the beginning. We are striking at our enemy with unprecedented might. 
I emphasize, this is just the beginning. Our enemies have only begun paying the price, and I won't detail what is yet to come, but I tell you that this is only the beginning. Israel has called up as many as 360,000 reservists, swelling the army's ranks to three times its usual size. But the enemy is likely to be prepared. Hamas is believed to have tens of thousands of fighters and a complex network of tunnels beneath the enclave. They're fighting on home ground and have had time to prepare traps and ambushes. Ahead of its expected invasion, the Israeli army issued a forced evacuation order for 1.1 million Palestinians in northern Gaza. But they have nowhere to go. We couldn't leave. They said leave towards the south. But there is no transportation. The street was closed. There was a traffic jam. Some cars got bombed by airstrikes. This is a genocide, not a war, and it's an attempt to displace the people of the Gaza Strip, but this will not happen. A ground invasion could have broader repercussions for the region. Following a meeting with Hamas leaders in Qatar, Iran's foreign ministry warned of far-reaching consequences if Israel pushes ahead with the next stage of its offensive. Meanwhile, the U.S. has deployed two aircraft carriers and a host of warplanes to the Middle East. President Joe Biden has warned other nations and groups not to get involved. Let me say this as clearly as I can. This is not a moment for any party hostile to Israel to exploit these attacks to seek advantage. The world is watching. Thousands of people on both sides have been killed in the past week of fighting. Further escalation is on the horizon, one that may go far beyond the war zone in Gaza. Vincent Monahan for Inside Story. Well, let's bring in our panel of experts to discuss this further. In Beirut, we have Elias Hanna, a retired Lebanese military general. In Brussels, it's Elijah Magnier, a military analyst who's covered conflicts in the Middle East for more than 30 years. And in the U.S. state of Delaware, Lawrence Korb, a retired U.S. Navy captain and former assistant secretary of defense. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to start with you, Lawrence. We've got very clear, I think, Israeli signaling now that this is going to happen soon. The prime minister has said the next stage is coming. The military have put out a statement, the Israeli military, that's going to be a coordinated attack from air, land and sea. Um, let me ask you, you've, you've been involved in military planning at the highest levels in the Pentagon. What do you think they're thinking about in terms of the timing? There are some reports that they were planning to do it at the weekend, but it's been delayed because of cloudy uh, conditions and they need to be able to see things from their air cover. Well, I think they were good for them from a military point of view to delay, because given the internal problems that you've had in Israel ever since uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu took over, the military wasn't in the normal shape. In fact, people weren't even showing up for reserve duty because of their concern what Netanyahu was doing. It also gives the United States with Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin to go around the region to get the other countries in the region to work with us and the Israelis after this military operation is over to make sure that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't happen again. The real question is what, how long will it take? How much damage will it do? And when will the Israelis uh, stop it? What will be the role of Egypt? Will they allow 
the hostages and some of the um, the people from Gaza to come in so that we uh, minimize civilian casualties. Okay, Elijah, of course, the thing we don't know is exactly what the Israelis are planning to do. We don't know the end game here. We don't think it's going to be another limited incursion. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has gone on record every Hamas member is a dead man. What do you think they are probably planning on this occasion? Thank you for having me. First of all, I think that the question of whether it's just an excuse we've seen in 2006 when Israel decided to attack Lebanon, it took them two weeks to organize themselves and call upon the reservists, and they were very hesitant to walk into Lebanon, and they were not successful in achieving their objectives. Here we're talking about reservists that are coming from all over the places. We're talking about 300,000 that are divided on two different fronts, plus the reserve under the command of the general commander, uh, in case one front needs more than the other, because in my opinion, there is going to be definitely a second front, and we will see that in the next 24, 72 hours. Thirdly, the Israelis are walking into a trap, and they know it. The Israelis are very good in their air force. They can destroy. We've seen what they have done in Gaza. They can level the city, but they cannot guarantee a success of the infantry. At the end of the day, it is not that air force they're going to occupy street by street. Fighting in urban city is not a promenade. It's something extremely challenging, even to the Israeli army. We've seen the consequences in 2014, and we understand that the Israelis will receive a heavily damage on all their soldiers. And again, I repeat, if other fronts are not starting, and I think that will be visible very soon. Elias, uh, Elijah there mentioned 2014. Israel lost 67 soldiers then. Um, tell us, in your view, how the two sides stack up in terms of their, their military forces. Clearly, Israel has huge numbers involved. They've called up 360,000 reservists. How do you see the two military forces that, that, that potentially are going to face each other? Uh, the balance of power is in Israel's favor. However, the characteristic of this war is totally different from 2006 and 2014. If you are planning to go into Gaza for an urban warfare, I mean, you have to really define what is the end goal, what is the goal, at what time you feel that you have really achieved your goal. Um, Netanyahu is so maximalist, he wants to destroy all of uh, Hamas. Would he be able to really destroy all of Hamas? So I think that there is three dynamics that is really playing in this game. First, the political dynamics, the military dynamics, the readiness of this uh, 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 IDF army, Israeli army. Are they ready to really? Do they have all means in order to go into Gaza? What would be the plan? I mean, the operational plan. Would they go and cut and compartmentalize, you know, this, dissect Gaza into sectors? What would be after? At what time they think that it is, you know, uh, uh, they have achieved their goal? Moreover, you are talking, we have to uh, take into consideration the regional uh, uh, aspect, the regional dynamics, what would happen at the Lebanese front, which is, you know, so it's uh, becoming hotter and hotter. And then after all of that, 
the, the, the global dynamics, which is really led by the United States of America. It's like protecting this operation to a certain degree, you know, that I think that the Americans have decided at what degree they will stop the war in order to really open up for diplomacy at that time. Moreover, the Herculean uh, uh, problem or Herculean task for the Israeli uh, army is to go into something not really aware of. They don't have the situational awareness. In the northern warfare, the ratio is totally different from defense and offense. Usually between two regular armies, one defender against three uh, uh, attackers. In this kind of uh, uh, urban area, uh, maybe you have to have one overton. Would Israel be able and accept such kind of casualties? Lawrence, let me ask you about that, about, the, about Gaza as it stands now, which will become potentially the battlefield if we have this ground um, intervention. You have potentially snipers' nests, booby traps, minefields, IEDs, suicide bombers. Um, one military person I saw say that, that parts of Gaza now look like Stalingrad and Hamas have all sorts of capabilities, some we might not know about. For example, drones, quadcopters capable of drop, dropping bombs, all those sort of things. I mean, um, if you were a military planner, you'd be very wary, wouldn't you, right now? Well, no doubt about it, because as my colleagues have mentioned, urban warfare as opposed to air and sea, you're going to have more casualties. I have no doubt that Hamas is putting its uh, forces in uh, civilian areas, including hospitals. And so you, even if you try and limit the damage, which I think the Israelis will, you can't do it uh, completely. And the real question becomes, if you have all of these civilian casualties, what is the reaction from the United States and uh, Israel's other allies around the world? And yes, that's going to be difficult because traditionally the Israelis have suffered very few casualties going back all the way to the Yom Kippur War. So I think this is going to also be a struggle, uh, you know, for the, uh, for, the for the government there. Fortunately, they have a unity government, so that should enable them to keep going. But I do think they better be prepared to take a lot of casualties, and the world needs to be prepared for a lot of civilian casualties because uh, Hamas is going to embed themselves with the, the normal people in hospitals and apartment houses and uh, stores. So picking up on what Lawrence said, Elijah, do you think Hamas potentially have the psychological advantage here? Israeli troops perhaps cautious after what happened on October the 7th. They saw Hamas's tactics, they saw their planning, they saw their capabilities. And, of course, in that attack, Israel lost a lot of... It proved that Israel's intelligence wasn't good, but they also lost a lot of their sensors and cameras around Gaza. Well, let us look at the goal of this objective, the objective of this operation. First of all, it is not to deter Hamas, because it is a completely different objective. Because of this war, because of the seismic shift in the Israeli public confidence in their military, there is a huge uncertainty for the people of Israel. This is why the Israelis are going into this war with a very low spirit, only to impose deterrence again and to give trust to the population that they have lost 
and questioning the effectiveness of their armed forces. So starting, we have Hamas with a very high spirit in comparison to the Israeli army with a very low spirit to go into uh, Gaza. Secondly, and most importantly, we have seen every time Israel waged war on Hamas, Hamas became stronger. This is exactly the same thing when Israel waged war on Hezbollah, and Hezbollah became such a strong non-state actor that today the Israelis need the support of the Americans to keep it on the side, and it's not going to stay on the side. So we see the Israelis, instead of deter Hamas and destroy Hamas, on every war, Hamas becoming stronger. Hamas doesn't need to hide behind the civilians because the Israelis already are taking care of killing the civilians. We have 8,800 wounded, most of them civilians. We have 2,800 killed, most of them civilians. So the Israelis are pretty good in targeting civilians and killing them because they are fighting and bombing using a quarter of a nuclear bomb on the city in only five to six days. Nobody can use such a firepower but the Israelis. And if they have confidence, why they need to level the whole city where they want to go in? It's because they are afraid. So starting before the beginning of the operation, they are losing it. Elias, um, you just heard Elijah there talking about the firepower that's been used. Um, 6,000 bombs in six days. We haven't had an update from the Israelis since then, but that's more than the U.S. dropped on the Syrian city of Raqqa during the siege, which lasted months, and it's more than the U.S. used in Afghanistan in an, in an entire year. Yeah, 7,000, 7,800. Uh, no, I mean, um, you have to, I mean, let me tell you something. Israel is in big dilemma, big problem. Uh, Israel is fighting non-state actors. In, 19, in 2006, uh, the United States of America wanted the greater Middle East, a new Middle East, and then they gave the green light for Israel to attack uh, Hezbollah for 33 days. They didn't lose, but there is the formula that Hezbollah has, has won because it didn't lose, and Israel lost because it didn't win. Uh, Israel cannot really repeat what's happening today with Hamas because after the, the, the flood of Al-Aqsa and this spectacular low-tech versus high-tech, Israel cannot really lose against Hamas. It's an imperative to destroy Hamas. And here comes the big dilemma. Why? Because uh, uh, Israel prepares itself for different kinds of warfare, never fought in cities. I remember, I do remember in 1982, when they invaded Lebanon, they encircled Tyre and then uh, go straight to Sidon and encircled Sidon and then went to, uh, directly to, to Beirut. And when they try to, uh, to enter Beirut, they have failed. So, I mean, uh, fighting in cities is so difficult, according to, you know, some two, as you said. So the dilemma of, uh, of Israel, what would be the end game? Is it to destroy or minimize or, you know, uh, 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 degrade the capability of Hamas. So they have to do something. Otherwise, I mean, it will be uh, definitively uh, uh, um, taken, you know, would, no, nobody in the region I mean, would take Israel as deterrent power, as great power, militarily speaking. Uh, if you imagine, I mean, if you go and, you know, uh, rebuild the scenario uh, of the flood of Al-Aqsa, I mean, slow-tech, high-tech, 
surprise, uh, speed, it's a blitzkrieg. And I think that Hamas had really planned for different scenarios. If they had succeeded with the flood of uh, Al-Aqsa, what would happen? I think they, 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 they were prepared, they were preparing for, or they have prepared for all scenarios possible, including one of invasion from the Israelis into the Gaza. Lawrence, uh, let me bring in another factor, and it's more than a factor because it's very human, and that's the captives that are being held by Hamas right now in Gaza. Does that make, do you think, this operation much more difficult for the Israelis? And, of course, we're talking about a hundred or so people, but they're not all Israelis. Some of them are foreign nationals. There are U.S. citizens, French citizens, U.K. citizens. Some of, um, some of Israel's close allies have a stake in all of this. Well, that certainly does make it more difficult. If well, The real question is, well, do the Israelis have the intelligence to know where those hostages are compared to try and undermine the military capability of Hamas? And the I assume that Hamas is spreading them out all throughout the region so that no matter where the Israelis go to try and eliminate Hamas and their military capability, they're going to be endangering hostages. There's no doubt about the fact they will do that. And that, of course, will have an impact on opinion around the world, including in the, uh, in the, in the United States. So that makes this very difficult. Israel has the capability to do it. The real question is, are they prepared to pay the cost, both in terms of lives and in their uh, uh, the perception of them around the world? Certainly, Elijah, it looks right now as though Israel has the gloves off. We've talked about the number of bombs that have been dropped. This time around, they're not doing what they used to call the roof knocks, a low-intensity strike as a warning. They're just warning entire areas. And we're hearing, and I'll quote this because it's from the New York Times, apparently for the ground offensive, uh, they're going to have new military rules of engagement. Uh, they've been loosened to allow soldiers to make fewer checks before shooting at suspected enemies. This is going to lead to a massive death toll, is it not? Obviously, because they also have the Hannibal Directive, where they can kill their own soldiers if they are in captivity and if they are uh, found uh, taken away by the militants. So they prefer to negotiate later on over the body rather than a soldier that is alive. However, I would like to say something. We've seen Netanyahu in power for the last 15 years, and we still have... Jalad uh, Sharif in uh, captivity, and he did not negotiate for his release. So negotiating at the end of the day for 100 plus uh, um, uh, soldiers, officers, or civilians, he knows that he had to release all the Palestinian soldiers, uh, all the Palestinian prisoners, if the Hamas and the Jihad have 10 or have 200. So the number is becoming relative at the end of the day. And for having these uh, hostages or these prisoners killed during the battle is not going to affect a lot the Americans and all the other nationals and nationalities because already the approval of the Americans for a ground offensive is taking into account the death or the killing of their nationals. I think Hamas and the Jihad prefer to have them alive because it's always have, we have seen 
in the negotiation of hostages between the Palestinians and the Lebanese and the Israelis, it's always better to have a hostage that is alive rather than dead. Nevertheless, with this war, I think the Israelis are going to have a rule of engagement where there is no mercy because we've seen how the Air Force is behaving with the civilians and with Gaza. Therefore, I don't think the Israeli army that in terms of peace is behaving heavily with a very heavy hand on the Palestinian civilians is going to have mercy on anything that is moving, particularly when the level of tension is extremely high among the Israelis that for some birds migrating from one country to another, they raise the alarm all over Israel and they are in really high tension and they have shot against each other when they were trying to repair electricity or group that are not coordinating because there is a high tension. So when they're going to walk in the city of 1.3 million in the north and 1 million in the south, they're going to go for the smaller area and the narrower area that is in the north. And they're going to walk in the city where they know under every debris there is a trap. I've seen that in the Kalamun battle in Syria because this is where I was present. And I've seen how snipers put themselves really at the bottom of the building, not on the top, and they managed to kill many of the fighters trying to occupy the city. So there is a large experience today we're talking about among the Hamas fighters and militants in the city where they have gained so much experience in previous wars and they know how to fight in urban city, but the Israelis don't. And we've seen them in 2006 in the, in the South Lebanon, how they really were forced to withdraw under the hit of the guerrilla warfare that are not, they're not used to. On the contrary, the Israeli special forces know how to, have, to fight this kind of war. But Israel has enough special forces to push in Hamas, uh, in uh, Gaza? Of course not. Okay. Um, Elias, um, if we look already, and we've only had a, a week of this bombardment, the death toll of Palestinian civilians is now more than 2014. And that war lasted for 50 days. I've seen one analyst saying the civilian death toll could equal the battle against ISIL and Mosul, where there's estimated to be 9,000 to 11,000 dead. How worried are you about a vast civilian casualty rate here? I am uh, deeply worried because uh, for Israel to achieve its goal, they have to go inside. Going inside, they have to bombard. I mean, especially the city of Gaza where you have like 750,000 people. And according to the Israeli sources, they say that most of the ground, underground tunnels, where the uh, Hamas's uh, commanders and leaders are really uh, uh, hiding in, uh, uh, b b below the Shifa hospital. So, I mean, in order to really calculate or define the victory or the theory of victory, when you do stop and saying, I, did, I do really achieve my goal, if Hamas say no, because you have left nothing to Hamas to say, because you are going as, in the World War II, unconditional surrender. We're talking about surrender. Now we are talking about destroying all of Hamas. How can you really destroy all of Hamas that is really spreading all over uh, 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 Gaza? 
and you are trying to change the population, the density of population. And we do remember in the urban warfare, there is three elements that play really in the output of any war in, in, in the city. Uh, uh, demography, topography, and geography. And the cities, they do have a special geography and topography. They change, they change the, the, the landscape, the building, they change the landscape, they make it different. Maybe, maybe we can say on a city, it's like the urban warfare is the most, the best equalizer between the balance of power. It doesn't okay. matter if you I, well, let me just Let me just bring in Lawrence at the end, because I, we, we've seen now, I think, Western countries were fully behind Israel, beginning to be a bit of a, a splintering, some really calling very strongly for restraint. What do you think could be a break on the Israelis if we do have mass civilian casualties? Is it really only U.S. public opinion and the White House in the end? Well, I think whatever side the White House is will be the key. These other nations and international organizations are already coming out against the casualties that have been caused just by the uh, bombing. So the real question is, what role will the United States play? I assume that Secretary Blinken going around now to the other countries in the region is working with them to come up with some way to deal with this situation, which is inevitable. Once they send in ground forces, as my colleagues have mentioned, there's going to be an awful lot of casualties, a lot of innocent people. Israel says their objective is to completely eliminate Hamas, not just their capability, to eliminate them completely. That is a very, very difficult goal for them to achieve in a reasonable amount of time and with a reasonable amount of deaths, both to the civilians and to the Israeli forces. Thank you, Lawrence. And thank you to our panel for their military and political analysis today. Elias Hanna, Elijah Magnier and Lawrence Korb. If you didn't catch all of the programme, you can find it on our website, aljazeera.com. If you have comments on our discussion, we want to hear from you. Go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And on X, the one that used to be called Twitter, we're at AJ Inside Story. Stay tuned for Al Jazeera's comprehensive coverage of the Gaza war. From me, James Bays and the team, bye for now. Welcome back. And that was an extensive and detailed discussion and analysis on the potential risk that the Israeli Defense Forces uh, face uh, in the current uh, uh, particular conjuncture. Uh, they claim, they have been claiming for the last eight days that they are going in in a ground intervention and occupation in Gaza, yet they are monumental. Uh, difficulties that could result in massive casualties, not only civilian casualties among the Palestinians, but also military casualties among the Israeli Defense Forces. Such casualties can cause political instability, and uh, Israeli Defense Forces are defeated in Gaza. Uh, it could break uh, the chain of command, the discipline, and at the same time, Without the Israeli Defense Forces, the state of Israel would be irreparably damaged. So this is a very, very important uh, situation that is developing here. Right now, we want to look at the impact of uh, Western imperialist policies on the Palestinian question. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal.
special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, 15th, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's listen uh, to uh, this next report. The West has united in backing Israel since Saturday's armed attack by Hamas, and Western governments have avoided criticizing the intensive Israeli bombing of Gaza. So how is Western policy towards Israel and Palestine over decades affecting the conflict today? This is Inside Story. Hello there, I'm James Bayes. The death toll in the Gaza war continues to rise as Israel pounds Palestinians with its intensive bombing of densely populated areas. Since Israel was founded in 1948, the United States has been its staunchest ally. Sentiments expressed by the US president after Hamas gunmen killed hundreds of Israelis on Saturday. My commitment to Israel's security and the safety of the Jewish people is unshakable. The United States has Israel's back and we're going to be working on this all through the day and beyond. The UK is another of Israel's strongest political and military backers and has pledged to continue with its intelligence and security support. We already have a very long-standing relationship with Israel. We're one of their strongest allies. We've provided in the past the kinds of equipment that they've used to defend themselves uh, over the past couple of days. And as I said to the Prime Minister, we will continue to provide whether that's diplomatic intelligence or security support as they need. Shortly after Saturday's attack, the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was quick to support Israel. In a tweet, she said, I spoke to my friend President Isaac Herzog and conveyed to him my full support to Israel in the face of today's terrorist attack by Hamas. I reiterate that Israel has the right to self-defense. The EU mourns the victims of these senseless attacks and stands by Israel today and in the next week. The US and the EU have also provided financial and humanitarian support to Palestinians, but that's coming under pressure and increased scrutiny since the events last weekend. The Biden administration has provided about half a billion dollars in funding since most was frozen by the previous president, Donald Trump. Hours after the attack by Hamas, a European commissioner declared more than $700 million worth of EU aid to Palestinians would be cut, but the EU has since clarified that funding will continue for now. So now let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss it all. In Doha, Abdullah Al-Aryan, Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University in Qatar. He's a specialist on U.S. Middle East policy. In Rome is Maria Luisa Fantapie, Head of Middle East and Africa Program for the Italian think tank Instituto Affari Internazionale. And in Dublin is Richard Boyd Barrett, a member of the Irish Parliament with the People Before Profit Party. A warm welcome to you all. Right, I would like to start with you, Abdullah, if I can. Right at the beginning and the basics, perhaps no surprise at all, Israel is staunchly being backed by the U.S. Yeah, I mean, as you say, there's no surprise really in this policy. This is something that has been part and parcel of U.S. foreign policy in this region for quite some time. But I would like to focus on maybe what some of the differences are. I think what we're seeing really over the course of the past decade or so has been a complete abandonment even of any pretense of becoming a so-called honest broker. We know the U.S. never... Uh, effectively managed to offer, uh, you know, the Palestinians, of course, being, um, you know, completely 
uh, you know, denied their own liberation, their own state. There was a thought in the 1990s that the United States could sponsor a process, the, the so-called Oslo Accords, as a means of providing them with statehood. But from the very beginning, I mean, really going back to the mid-90s, it was very clear that Israel had no intention of actually delivering on this two-state solution and instead used that opportunity of passivity from the Palestinian side to double and triple the number of settlements and so expansion across all of the Palestinian territories. And then, of course, later on, once we get into the mid, uh, early to mid-2000s, we see this blockade of Gaza beginning and the kind of encirclement and besiegement of uh, what is now over 2 million people population. And so I think what's really distinct about the last decade in particular, you know, going back maybe to the late Obama period to then, of course, under Donald Trump, who everyone saw as being a kind of very exceptional uh, president as, as one who sort of says out loud what most U.S. policymakers would never dare to speak is that he cared nothing whatsoever for the plight of Palestinians. He completely circumvented and bypassed any demands and kept them basically in the exact same situation that they continue to be in and instead focused on this idea of normalization between Israel and a number of Arab states, all of whom, of course, found mutual benefits in that arrangement under a kind of U.S. regional security umbrella um, and along with it, of course, all of the major economic benefits. And so in the meantime, the Palestinian question was no longer even on the back burner. It simply didn't exist. There has been no discussion whatsoever. And then we get to the Biden administration, and they simply inherited the Trump foreign policy to the Middle East. We've seen no distinction between what Trump was doing. Uh, you know, the Biden administration endorsed the move of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which was an incredibly volatile move and a, and a very daring move in a way in terms of upsetting what had been seen at that point as being something of a no-go because of the fact that Jerusalem continues to be uh, considered occupied territory by the UN, by international law. And then, of course, we see this push to double down on the normalization agreements between Israel and now with Saudi Arabia, which is kind of the big fish in all of this. So I think there is something to be said about the fact that U.S. policy has gotten even more staunchly um, you know, in, in opposition to any notion that there should be anything of a settlement for um, Palestinians who continue to be stateless and, and very much um, stuck in this kind of uh, apartheid situation. Maria, um, let me just ask you, you could say what we're seeing on our screens is what we've seen play out many times before in Gaza, but there are big differences too. The scale of the Israeli casualties, the largest loss of, of life in an attack in the country's history, the tactics that were used by Hamas, and also, how important do you think is the fact that this time there are captives inside Gaza? No, definitely. I mean, this is uh, something uh, that is uh, quite uh, unprecedented and uh, uh, in terms of, like, the level of uh, infiltrations within, uh, like, the, the Israeli territory. And I think to a certain extent uh, it's, uh, it's uh, something that came also as a shock to the uh, Western and European public opinion. Uh, and this is why also uh, there has been such a sort of schizophrenic responses also from the uh, EU institution to a certain extent because the level of the violence has been so 
shocking uh, to the public that then this has created a very emotional response to a certain, to a certain extent. And uh, um, uh, definitely uh, the EU uh, has been always uh, uh, like uh, supporting the idea of the two-state solution. But I think that uh, the problem has been that the first uh, uh, the first responses were actually much more uh, inclined towards showing solidarity towards Israel, which is normal. But however, I think there has been a mismanagement in the communication also because uh, uh, this has created some confusion on what actually on where the EU stands vis-a-vis -vis of this conflict. Um, so a lot of emotions uh, and a little attention, I think, for uh, the, what has been the EU strategy towards this conflict for, for many years in terms of uh, EU approach and EU responses uh, in the early days of this conflict. Uh, Richard, you are also in an EU capital like Maria. Um, I want to come back to the EU, if I may. D does that emotion that Maria talks about, does that explain the fact that early White House statements seem to lack any of the usual cause calls for proportionate response or exercise of restraint? Yes, um, I think that is the case. Um, uh, I mean, Jake, for example, our Minister for Foreign Affairs yesterday, where he was being interviewed, as I was, uh, on the radio, and he felt able to say that Israel was acting in self-defense. Uh, so when he was questioned about Israel's threats to uh, starve Gaza and all its population of water, of energy, of uh, food, he, he, he could use terminology like self-defense. And obviously, I, you know, I challenged that very, very strongly and said that it, this was not self-defense and the threat to collectively punish 2.2 million people to, uh, you know, bombard with massive artillery strikes um, the most densely populated residential area in the world were war crimes. Uh, it, it, they, if you like, we, it, those who were speaking on behalf of Palestinians were being pushed on the defensive. Uh, so I think there's the United States and Israel feel emboldened to be able to act with greater impunity than they might otherwise uh, feel. Um, and uh, we're seeing that, you know, with the extraordinary, explicit and brazen threats by Israel to commit, and indeed they've started to commit, war crimes um in front of the eyes of the world and say explicitly that what they're going to do, which is by any de definition is a war crime, that they're just going to do it anyway, and the United States stands firmly behind them, and many, if not most, of the European Union leaders uh, equally sort of giving legitimacy to what Israel is doing. So it really is shocking when, of course, the truth of the matter is that uh, what happened, and it, you know, the, the loss of life is terrible, and everybody is is appalled by this escalation of violence. But certainly, I think I feel, and many people would feel, none of what happened again could have happened were it not for a 17-year-long siege on Gaza, the extraordinary sort of escalation of the war on the Palestinians by the Israeli, uh, this particularly vicious 
Israeli government uh, of Netanyahu, Smotrich, and Ben Giver. But that is that is the real context. Uh, is, the, is the ongoing crimes against humanity being committed against the Palestinians? But there is no doubt that uh, Israel feels emboldened at the moment, as do its major backers. So Richard has just laid out the narrative as he sees it in the context there, Abdullah. But just tell us a bit about how this is seen in the U.S., because you study the U.S. and its policy towards the Middle East. I mean, I I watch U.S. media as well. In fact, I I, I live most of the time in New York, although I'm currently in Doha. 22 U.S. citizens killed, 17 missing and maybe held prisoner. Do you think the prisoner part of it and the word hostage is the one that's being used in the U.S. media? Do you think that perhaps explain some of, 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 of the reporting and then some of the actions by the administration? Well, certainly, I think, you know, part of it is the media coverage. I think there's a narrative that immediately takes hold the moment events like this, um, you know, happen. And that narrative tends to, in, in a kind of a very uh, one-dimensional way, you know, paint one side as an aggressor, paint one side as victim, and then erase all history, all context, all even recent events, as if, you know, everything just sort of occurs in this bubble, in this vacuum on the day of, of you know, these, these horrific events. And so I think... Can, can is, I ask you, Abdul, you know, part I mean, of the, can I ask you yeah. the, the historical context of, of hostage crisis? I mean, I'm going a long way back to 1979, but in fact, um, you know, Pre- President Biden was one of the closest supporters of President Carter. Do you think that historical echo may perhaps explain why, why the occupant of the West Wing is pursuing the policy he is? I don't know that, that that would necessarily be the connection. I mean, I think in general there's been seen as this massive support for Israel in particular because let's not forget there are Palestinian Americans that are constantly being victimized, that are constantly being oppressed, that are being killed by Israel, right? We, we know the case of your colleague, Shireen Abu Akhla, who's a Palestinian-American journalist. And if you look at uh, all of the attempts by the family to go and seek any kind of investigation on the part of the U.S., into her killing by Israel last year, um, there was almost no response, right? And the U.S. Secretary of State, who's now flying to Israel to, to have conversations uh, about the safety and return of Israeli Americans, could never do the same for Palestinian Americans. I think that's a, it's, there's a fair question there as far as why has this always been the case? Why is there a double standard? Why are some American citizen lives, um, you know, worth less than others? I think this is this is certainly something that comes out of a much deeper affinity that the U.S. has always had with the state of Israel, irrespective of its actions, irrespective of, as we've seen, there's now a growing international consensus about the fact that there's an apartheid system that's in place, about the fact that we've seen violence of this scale um, on multiple other occasions, although now certainly it's been ramped up even further, in, in, in large part because of the U.S. offering a kind of a green light that we've never really seen um, up to this point. And even in terms of the, the violence that we're seeing, it's not just in Gaza, but even going into uh, the West Bank with some of the shooting sprees that we're hearing about in terms of, of um, you know, Palestinians who are essentially escaping some of these kinds of revenge attacks that we've seen. So I think that there's a there's a bigger, deeper context here that seems to be ignored. We don't hear about most of this in the U.S. media. And public opinion and sympathies have certainly aligned in a very particular kind of way that is very much in keeping with the longer standing narrative, the dehumanization of Palestinians, the idea that you can have officials both in the U.S. and in Israel um, make, you know, incredibly dehumanizing, racist, genocidal remarks. And it goes completely un, un, 
responded to, right? Or the media does not make any kind of an attempt to challenge any of those narratives. Well, let me bring that up with Richard. I mean, some of the things you probably heard uh, from across the Atlantic, uh, parallels with 9-11, Senator Lindsey Graham, we're in a religious war, and I unapologetically stand with Israel at a news conference in recent hours, the U.S. Secretary of State and the Israeli Prime Minister saying Hamas is the same as Daesh or, or ISIL, whatever you call it. What do you make of all of that, that sort of language? Yeah, well, I mean... I think Abdullah is absolutely right. Uh, I mean, I, I think public opinion over the last number of years has increasingly become aware of the the apartheid nature of the Israeli regime, of its uh, its you know ongoing campaigns of ethnic cleansing, uh, it, it, its dysfunctional and sort of uh, abnormal character has been highlighted by. The Amnesty International reports and Human Rights Watch reports and other reports about the apartheid nature of that state. Um, so on the one hand, Israel has been delegitimized in the minds of millions of people, but now uh, Israel and its backers feel they have an opportunity to push back against all of that. And again, as Abdullah said, it's like they start the clock of this story at what happened over the weekend, as if there is no other context. Uh, and uh, they rely on, you know, the lack of knowledge or information or awareness of the background and history to all of this, uh, of, of, of significant sections of the public in the United States and in Europe to kind of, you know, ignore all of that history. Uh, so it, it all just started at the weekend. Now, I, I think, you know, we all... Well, that's not true. Um, in fact, I, I will give credit to the Irish president, Mary Robinson, the former Irish president. She was being interviewed on the radio uh, just uh, about an hour ago. I was listening to her, and she was making the point that during the summer, she warned that if the siege of Gaza wasn't lifted, if the impunity Israel was enjoying in terms of the ethnic cleansing, the illegal settlements, the ongoing uh, brutal occupation, if these matters were not going to be addressed by the international community, that she feared, and this was during the summer, that we were facing into a terrifying escalation of violence, uh, an uncontrollable, I think, escalation of violence. And she was absolutely right. And that is the context. But, of course, Israel, the United States, their backers in Europe want to pretend that there was no history to all of this, and it all began uh, with the events of the weekend. And they are trying to use that then to justify an even more savage uh, escalation of the war on Gaza and on the Palestinians generally. Maria, I'd like to put to you the point that Abdullah made earlier on, that this is a complete indictment of the Biden strategy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which seems to have been, as he said, a continuation of the Trump strategy. And it basically was to ignore the Palestinians, to go round the Palestinians, try and get an economic peace um, with Arab countries. Um, what's your view of how that strategy has played out? I think that it has played out in a tragic uh, way, in the sense that uh, despite uh, definitely there are uh, local causes to this conflict that is latent, is ongoing uh, from several uh, decades, However, there is a regional context in which this attack took place, and the 
regional context is uh, one which for several uh, weeks and for several months there has been enormous pressure exerted by uh, by Washington on uh, uh, on Saudi Arabia and uh, on the Gulf in general, but on Saudi Arabia in particular, to obviously uh, go ahead with this uh, normalization deal. So, um, which if uh, between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So, if this uh, normalization deal, um, which could have happened uh, against Saudi Arabia receiving a certain amount of uh, military uh, uh, military uh, infrastructure, if this deal would have happened, obviously the Palestinian issue would have been, uh, I think, obliterated completely from the uh, from the um, from the discussion because. Uh, uh, despite the Saudis' uh, wishes or uh, statements that they wanted to deliver something on this, it seems to be that uh, actually in Tel Aviv there was no, in Jerusalem there was no actually wishes from the Netanyahu government to actually deliver anything on this. So the Israelis obviously were convinced that the Saudis could be okay just with uh, with the military deal. The Washington administration probably thought the same. And that obviously has created a pushback. It has created a pushback, I believe, not only uh, from uh, local movements uh, like Hamas, but also, I think, from uh, many other regional players who uh, did not want uh, this cause to disappear from uh, the debate. So I think that the, the attack of Hamas in some way re uh, brings back the Palestinian issue at the very center of the regional equilibrium at the moment in which it risks to be totally um, deleted. But it is important to say that uh, Part of this uh, tragic event is also, I think, the indirect uh, and even uh, uh, indirect result of a U.S. strategy, which really forced the hand of this normalization and didn't uh, understand that in order to um, uh, to achieve normalization, you needed the time, you needed concessions. But they didn't have time because there was the presidential election and they didn't want to um, make concession or they didn't want to pressure the Israeli government to make concession, it seems. And so the result has been obviously a pushback. So I think that somehow if you compare this approach with uh, what we have seen over the past month, the Chinese approach, which has been that one of trying to actually um, uh, bro uh, break a deal between regional rivals such as Saudi Arabia and Iran, it almost comes to the point of saying that the Chinese strategy has been in so far maybe more successful. So uh, I think that really there is a lot of rethinking of uh, how Washington moves uh, when it comes to, uh, to normalization. I think that normalization could be possible, but not without some steps forwards uh, on the Palestinian issue, which is a substantial step forward. Abdullah, we see Secretary Blinken in the region now. Um, he's not looking at the big picture. He's showing support for Israel, but he's also focusing, and we hear talk about humanitarian corridors and safe passage. There's already been detailed negotiations, we understand, between the Israelis and the Egyptians and the U.S., now reported that the Secretary of State will be coming to Qatar. Um, but I'm also hearing reports that Egypt's not allowing a mass movement of people into its territory. Could we be looking at some sort of deal where dual nationals, U.S. nationals, we think there are about five or six hundred, are allowed out of Rafa and the rest of the population of Gaza gets stuck there? 
I mean, I, I don't think we have any indication of that as of yet, that there's a specific concern for, for U.S. citizens there. Certainly there hasn't been over the course of almost a week of, of incessant carpet bombing of the entire territory of Gaza. Um, you know, I, and I think in terms of what the response has been for people who have attempted to go to the border, of course, as we've seen, um, you know, instances of, of Israel actually bombing the crossing. And so people who are attempting to cross at that point, and then there's also been, of course, uh, the denial by Israel and the threats made that if Egypt were to try to offer aid to enter into Gaza, that they would also be bombing that those aid convoys. So, you know, there there really is a question here about who even controls uh, the territory, the border between Gaza or Palestine and Egypt. And I think that's, you know, and, and there's another point that I think is worth considering, which is going back to the kind of the previous conversation about the view of these normalization agreements from the Arab side as well, because I do think that, that you know, we have transitioned from a period in which, you know, many of the region's rulers would at least pay lip service to the notion of the Palestine issue to the point where it gets completely erased. And I think that's because the nature of how legitimization of these regimes happens has changed substantially in the aftermath of the Arab Spring uprisings. And so now we're looking at over a decade from that period in which many of these governments are ruling their own populations quite ruthlessly. So it's not surprising that they would not even entertain the notion of, uh, of justice for Palestinians. And so I think okay. this has actually in some ways eased the process by which these normalization deals can happen. Maria, back to you. We've seen the responses of the US and the EU and on paper they look very similar, but do you think within the EU camp there is perhaps some unease behind the scenes? Certainly before the latest events over the last 18 months in my day job at the United Nations of speaking to EU politicians, EU diplomats who are, who are showing real disquiet about the Israeli most right-wing government and some of its activities. Oh, definitely there are different, uh, I mean, different member states have also different policies, uh, different approaches. There has been uh, definitely a discomfort with uh, uh, the Netanyahu government and the retrenchment of uh, democratic freedoms in Israel. I think that overall there has been always, uh, I mean, the discussion about uh, uh, supporting the Israeli concerns when it comes to security concerns of, of Israel. This is, is, is something that is always present. But I think that the other question to ask is more of what role for the EU also in this situation, because after this very confusing response where one commission came out saying we will have to cast the aid, the, develop, the humanitarian aid to the Palestinian territories, then, you know, there has been a going back to this position and saying, no, we will not, and then so there has been a very confusing response in the first days. I think that, however, now the EU is in, in the interest of the EU and in the interest also of the United States to really avoid um, the regionalization of this conflict. And therefore, this is why such emotional response uh, uh, and polarizing tone on the conflict are not helping. I think that the EU should sort of uh, rethink um, its approach reinvest really into the what has been like the two-state solution idea, but also and most importantly on the idea of how to um, uh, start the leveraging on those regional players, especially in the Gulf, who actually do not want a regionalization of the conflict, engage with them um, and uh, try to really um, uh, sort of support uh, a containment of this of this conflict, uh, if we can say so, and not its 
spread out uh, okay. across the region. Okay, let me put that, put that to Richard, because you are just one individual EU politicians. What should individual politicians, what should members of the public do very quickly to end our conversation? Well, I, I mean, certainly what I'm doing and uh, others of like mind are trying to say in the face of people being horrified at what they're looking at, this terrible escalation of violence, that we have to get to the root cause. That if, if this is not going to get even worse uh, and uh, continue forever, uh, that we need to get to the root cause. And uh, in my view, and certainly what I have been arguing uh, very strongly, and I think many others are, is that the root cause of this is uh, the apartheid nature of the Israeli state, the colonialist nature of the Israeli state, that it is based on the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, on the denial of their most basic rights, the rights to return, uh, the right to self-determination, uh, that it is based entirely on the ruthless, uh, brutal and murderous suppression of Palestinian rights, and that this, in the same way as apartheid South Africa, was not acceptable, uh, and a movement eventually of resistance inside South Africa, as well as internationally, finally led to the dismantling of the, uh, that regime, that that is the only way we are going to get peace and justice uh, in Palestine. Thank you, Richard. Thank you to all our guests, to Maria Luisa Van Tapie, Abdullah Al-Aryan and Richard Boyd Barrett. A fascinating conversation. If you didn't catch it all, you can see it again on the website, aljazeera.com. On this show, we discuss one of the main stories of the day. So I'm sure the ongoing war will be the focus of our conversation for some time to come. Do you have a comment on an aspect of this story? Um, anything you want us to cover, get in touch. Find our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Or on X, that's the one I still call Twitter. We're at AJ Inside Story. From me, James Bays, and the team, bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that uh, was a discussion on the impact of uh, Western imperialism on uh, the boldness and the character of the military and foreign policy of the state of Israel. Now, uh, right now we want to listen uh, to a report on a tour uh, by the foreign minister of the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, throughout West Asia in response to the escalation of the struggle in Palestine. There's been many uh, allegations made uh, through the Western uh, bourgeois and government-controlled media that Hamas, Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, and others are merely proxies of the Islamic Republic of Iran. There's no substantial evidence to support such an assessment. It does not reveal to uh, people in the United States what the actual character of the state is in Israel, and also the dynamics involving uh, foreign policy and international relations in uh, West Asia and North Africa. Let's listen uh, to this report about the Iranian foreign minister and his tour uh, to the region over the last few days. 
Well, protests continue around the world in support of Palestinians. Eight days into the war, thousands have been rallying in Istanbul and Turkey, supporting Palestine and denouncing the US and Israel. In the Moroccan city of Rabat, thousands of people have been marching to support Palestine. Protesters and politicians from across the country joined the rally. Tunisians took to the streets to support Palestine, while the Tunisian army prepares to send aid to Gaza. However, in India, protesters have marched in support of Israel. Rallies also took place over the weekend in Germany and South Africa, showing solidarity with Israel. Well, let's bring in Marwan Bashara. He is Al Jazeera's senior political analyst. He joins us now from London. Uh, Marwan, uh, first of all, I want to talk to you about Iran's foreign minister's comments uh, from only uh, a few hours ago. He basically, I just want to reiterate uh, for people who might just be joining us, uh, he, he basically said that uh, his country will not remain an observer in the ongoing conflict, uh, that if the scope of this conflict widens, heavy losses will be inflicted on the United States. What do you make of those comments? Well, clearly he is uh, upping the ante, as it were, and uh, clearly he is not deterred Iran is not deterred by uh, President Biden's threat uh, with the word don't. Uh, don't try to take advantage of the situation. Don't try to undermine Israel's war on Gaza. And don't try to attack Israel while it is preoccupied uh, with the war against Hamas. Clearly, Iran is not listening. Clearly, Iran does not accept any such threats and ultimatum, at least rhetorically. And I agree with your earlier guest, uh, Gregory, that uh, for the time being, it is all rhetoric, right? For the mm -hmm. time being, uh, we have this conflicting discourse between Iran on the one side and the United States on the other side. Blinken, he is on his way uh, to Israel tomorrow. He's obviously met with many leaders around the Gulf. Uh, he will be delivering uh, their messages, no doubt, uh, to Netanyahu. What do you think will be the main thrust of those messages? And I guess the other side of that question is, do you think that Netanyahu will listen? That's a very good question. And by the way, that also applies uh, to the question about Iran and Hamas. I have the feeling that now we are in the midst of this crisis, that perhaps we are in the logic of the tail wagging the dog, in the sense that I think now Hamas and Israel are acting according to their very immediate interests, according to the conditions on the ground, and are no longer listening to Iran and the United States. I think uh, Iran and the United States could speak their mind, uh, they could influence, but clearly at this point in time, the conditions on the ground are so polarized and so dangerous that Hamas and Israel will probably take matters into their hands. Having said that, just quickly about uh, Blinken, uh, I just noticed a change of tone from the time he was speaking in Israel to the time he was in Egypt, mm. uh, right? Uh, clearly, uh, what he heard from Arab leaders, although not necessarily major condemnations of Israel, but clearly he heard enough to start talking about the Palestinians and the humanitarian assistance, and clearly being lectured by even President uh, Sisi in Egypt about Israel's uh, going way beyond defense to collective punishment, I think all of that uh, discourse from the Arab leaders has certainly probably made uh, some kind of a difference in how Blinken now views uh, the crisis. 
Yeah, with 2,600 or more than 2,600 Palestinians uh, killed in Gaza already, and that number rising by the hour, how much pressure is uh, Blinken going to be able to put on Netanyahu to try and get a humanitarian aid in there before uh, the Israeli forces uh, go in on the ground? Yeah, again, right, we, we don't know. Uh, mm. I think it's probably going to be a major, major uh, humanitarian catastrophe even before the war, uh, the war starts. Uh, Tom, uh, when we all look at the images uh, out of Khan Yunus in the south of Gaza with a million people displaced, and clearly starvation is on the way, and clearly diseases are on the way, and clearly the fact that you cramp a whole, you know, hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million persons the way if they've been cramped with no electricity, probably soon no running water, no food, and so on and so forth. The humanitarian disaster is already here. And I think if uh, the Arab world does not put more pressure, and the United States do not put more pressure, I think everyone involved in this conflict on the side of Israel, including the UK, Europe, and the United States, where they will all be complicit in some form of a collective punishment slash war crime against the Palestinians. Mm. We've talked over the, the last few days uh, about this conflict spreading uh, further afield. Is that at a greater risk now, eight days on, than it has been over the last week? I think it is. Uh, just watching the tanks uh, rolling, uh, watching the 100,000-plus Israeli soldiers amassing uh, on the Israel-Gaza border, and also watching the clashes intensify slightly, uh, around the Israel-Lebanon border or on the north, and with Iran making threats about the upcoming earthquake in the region. Mm. If Israel, in fact, invades by land uh, Gaza, then I think we're certainly you know, going through the process of a countdown towards the widening of the conflict. Will Iran follow through on its, on its threats? Will actually Hezbollah widen the war? It remains to be seen. But clearly the United States has made a threat. And I think just remembering Biden criticizing Obama for not following through on the threat regarding serious chemical weapons, mm -hmm. I think now that he dispatched two aircraft carriers to the area, if something breaks up, it's going to be very difficult for the United States to stay on the sideline. We'll have to leave it there, but uh, as always, we really do appreciate your insight. That is Marwan Bashawa, uh, Al Jazeera's senior political analyst. Thanks so much. Welcome back. And, uh, of course, uh, these are some of the dynamics uh, that are going on in the current uh, burgeoning crisis in Palestine, throughout West Asia and North Africa. Uh, the Pan-African Newswire has been covering uh, these developments around the clock. If you want to uh, stay abreast of what is happening uh, in regard uh, to the situation in West Asia and North Africa around the efforts of the Palestinian people to win their national liberation, independence, and sovereignty, just go to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, October the 15th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studio in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. Uh, the music of the impressions from 1967, uh, track entitled We Are a Winner. And uh, you're listening to the Pan African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, October 15th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And as I mentioned before, if you want to uh, keep up uh, with these rapidly developing events uh, all around the world, just go to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. Earlier today, there was a uh, discussion and debate uh, over the South African Broadcasting Corporation on the situation in Gaza and throughout the West Asia and North Africa region. We're going to play uh, some excerpts uh, from that discussion over uh, the South African Broadcasting Corporation. At 7 o'clock on a Sunday night, Israel-Hamas conflict. It's topical and it starts right now. Very good evening to you, South Africa, those watching around the world. My name is Blaine Herman, and this is It's Topical. Our digital audience with us tonight, among them our guests as well. Good to have them on the program. Looking forward to getting their questions uh, to our guests in a short while. Many are gripped by rugby fever here in South Africa, but a lot of the world's attention is on the Hamas-Israel conflict. Thousands of people dead, thousands displaced, several thousands injured. There's been calls for an immediate and unconditional opening of humanitarian corridors. President Cyril Ramaphosa saying it's vital that all those who require urgent humanitarian assistance are provided with the basic life-supporting necessities and that human suffering is ameliorated. Question, is there an intertwined fate, F-A-T-E, of these two people? Tonight, our aim is to bring as many perspectives as possible on these matters. Why? Because it allows you and your family to make up your own mind as to what's the best possible solution to the situation in the Middle East. We are not here to play sides. That's not the job. Our job is to give you the facts as we know it and give you context. It's a tough job, right, given the current state of play. But we choose the vocation, so we will do it. And because there's an understanding here, that facts are only relevant in the context of humanity. There's a lot of disagreement as to who's right and who's wrong, who has the moral high ground and who doesn't. But one thing's for certain, there's pain on both sides. So let's use that as a springboard to get to understand what's at stake here. But more importantly, to put purpose to pain and to look for avenues of opportunity that this region can take advantage of on the road to durable peace. Which leads us to the question, of the week and we ask you what do you think needs to be done to avert the looming humanitarian crisis amid the ongoing israel hamas conflict let's walk and talk as always it's a simple question but the answers couldn't be more complicated right how can peace be achieved in the middle east we've been asking this for decades often the simplest questions come with complex answers how can a just and fair solution be reached? And what role can countries like South Africa play in finding this solution? Let us know at its topical SABC perspective coming up.
right, let's get you context and all. As always, we're going to turn to the magic wall, what we know and why it matters. The United Nations Secretary General said on Friday that the attacks by Hamas on Israel killed more than 1,200 people and injured thousands more since last Saturday. And this was followed by intense bombardment of Gaza that has already killed over 1,800 people and injured thousands more. These figures are, are changing as the days progress. Let me bring in my guest tonight to help me unpack this. SBC News International Foreign Editor, Sophie Mokkwena. Thank you, ma'am, for joining us. Good to have you on the program. Let's break it down for the viewers. What we know and why it matters. Context, always important. So, map of Israel, right? Uh, we know back in 2006, there was elections. Mm -hmm. Then what followed immediately was fighting between Hamas and Fatah. Yes. At the end of the day, Hamas controls Gaza. The Palestinian Authority controls the West Bank. Fast forward to today. But important to look at the long lens of history. How did we get to this point? We know that it is a long protracted uh, conflict where Palestine and Israel couldn't implement the agreement that were reached for many years to ensure that these two nations live side by side. You know the 1917 Balfour Declaration yeah. where there was an agreement to uh, share the land but that was not implemented. And then the 1948 modern Israel state was yeah. formed, and we know that uh, there was a war, and that war led to more tension. And we know that the Palestinians were not happy. In fact, many people are saying all these negotiations, the Palestinians right. are continuously being shortchanged. And here we are today. Yeah. They say enough is enough, and they want movement. And here we are sitting with a conflict yeah. that has intensified. And let us be clear, it didn't start that Saturday Correct. where people were killed at that concert. It was a build-up. Perhaps the media hasn't been covering mm. the build-up properly because there's so much happening around the world. And that is why Dr. Naledi Pandon last year warned leaders of the world that you are now focused on Ukraine, mm -hmm. but a mess is developing mm -hmm. in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And here we are today. So, following that, in terms of the builder, questions now being asked about Israel's intelligence. Did they see this coming? What did America know, for instance, as well? What are we learning? We heard that uh, Egypt did give information, but Israel has denied those reports. We are told also that uh, it looks like the intelligence in the United States of America had some information. So it is very difficult to verify that information, particularly when Israel is saying there is no such. Mm. But there are reports that... Uh, uh, there was information that was uh, given to some people in Israel, but they didn't act. You know that Israel 
internally they are having lots of challenges, those constitutional changes yeah. that uh, are being pushed by the current government and we saw people taken to the streets, yeah. thousands of Israelis and even some structures of government, uh, the democratic structures in that country, yeah. uh, people taking sides because they were not happy. Perhaps that internal challenge led to a situation where Israel was relaxed. Yeah. But they are denying. This is one of the sore points uh, that everybody's talking about in terms of the electricity, food and fuel blockade in Gaza. What do we know with regards to this? So how bad a is terrible the situation. situation. A terrible mm. situation there. The Secretary General of the United Nations on Friday, he had uh, an emergency meeting of the Security Council. He had uh, two briefings on, 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 on that day. Thursday also another briefing mm. talking about that crisis. I mean, it's, 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 it's horrible. Yeah. No electricity. No food coming in, water, but one thing that I think is going to be a real blight on Israel mm. is the bombardment landed in some hospital. Mm. And you know that that's a, a war crime. Mm. Mm. So it leads us to this, this looming humanitarian crisis. We know that uh, Israel has asked more than a million people to flee south, right? There's about 1.1 million people here. Gaza has about 2 million people in total, right? The United Nations has come up and said, hang on, do you want all those people to go through this in a so-called war zone? Uh, sometimes, in many cases, it's almost near impossible. Um, what do we know at this stage in terms of the movement? Very few people are indeed uh, heeding the cause, but some of them are being killed on their way to the south and now the two sides are pointing fingers at each other. Israel is saying Hamas is attacking those who are living so that it instills fear and Hamas is saying no, it is Israel. And we know that the Secretary General of the United Nations uh, who has condemned in strongest terms Hamas and the action thereof uh, that led to the killing of thousands of people yeah. uh, on that Saturday fateful uh, morning. This time around, he was very harsh to say mm. the instruction by the Israel Defense Force mm. that people must move is not reasonable. Yeah. It is impossible. The World Health Organization Director General uh, Tedros Ghebreyesus said the same thing, even lamenting that uh, the situation is already horrible right. in relation to health services. So maybe those harsh words and many people making noise, yeah. putting spotlight on Israel. Because remember on Saturday when the incident happened, many, many people around the world mm -hmm. sympathized with Israel. But the narrative is changing mm -hmm. and it is important for Israel to realize that the more you get aggressive, right. you undo what you have done in terms of people who are sympathizing with Israel because mm. of that incident on Saturday. Because when people see those visuals, we have them, mm. we beam them every yeah. day, the frustration. And just imagine saying people must move. Mm. 
and there's no humanitarian corridor. Yeah. Well, that becomes an important point. Now, with neighboring countries such as Egypt, the rougher border crossing becomes very crucial, isn't it? Uh, I was listening to the World Food Program regional director says that they have about 1.3 uh, food for about 1.3 million sitting at the border. The foreign affairs uh, minister of Egypt saying that the other side into Gaza at the border crossing is inoperable because of the uh, you know damage there on that side. So where's the solution here? Well, e Egypt is clear. They are not going to allow that uh, passage yeah. because they know very well that this is a strategy those palestinians who are going to leave their land and their houses and move to neighboring countries mm -hmm. chances of them going back to their land it's nil it has been happening for years instead it will be smaller and smaller that piece of land and egypt is saying we are not going to allow that mm. Two, Egypt is saying, if you want the passage, allow the humanitarian mm. corridor. We have thousands and thousands of trucks waiting to deliver food and all the necessities to Gaza. Mm. You don't want us to give ordinary civilians help, yeah. but you want us to help your citizens mm. to be evacuated. That, that passage it's not for Palestinians. Right. It's more of the foreign nationals who are there, who are supposed to leave that right. uh, area that is engulfed in war. Right. And therefore, Egypt strategically is saying, let's agree. We open the passage. You allow the humanitarian mm. uh, corridor. That has been requested by the world body, mm. the credible world body, the very same world body that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu addressed mm. Recently, during the uh, UNGA. And many states have been uh, requested to give aid, South Africa included. We heard the president mm. uh, speaking about that, uh, talking about that, and he says government is processing that. So we'll see how that unfolds over the next couple of days. I want to have a look at this now as we conclude, Sophie, with regards to where to next. This is this still a vi viable option at this stage in the game? The two-state solution is dead. It's dead. Both sides are saying that. And uh, the noise from international community, it's not going to work. Mm. The two nations are saying the two-state solution is dead. We spoke to the ambassador of uh, Palestine mm. on Friday. I asked her a question about this two-state solution. She said, it's dead. Mm. And the same with uh, the other side. And therefore, the Palestinians and those who are supporting the Palestine cause are saying you have to start from scratch. Mm. Because all these negotiations, actually, Palestinians were shortchanged. Sophie, thank you very much indeed. It's a complicated matter, no doubt. Thank you to you and your team for keeping on top of things. Sophie Mokwena is SABC News International Editor. Look, Israel has vowed to annihilate Hamas in retaliation for its unprecedented attacks against what they say is civilians as well. Israel says about 1,300 people were killed in an unexpected term onslaught being used 
It's responded by subjecting Gaza to the most intense bombardment it had, has ever seen, putting the small enclave under total siege and destroying much of its infrastructure. Take a look. just like to warn you that we may have red alerts going off here any moment now. I just heard some very loud booms in the distance that would potentially be the Iron Dome intercepting rockets. This is Israel's 9-11. This is Israel's 9-11. Israel has bombarded the Hamas-run Gaza Strip with unprecedented airstrikes. After Hamas fighters stormed through Israeli towns a week ago, gunning down civilians and taking scores of hostages. I've been in a war in two wars in my life and never seen, seen anything like this. Bodies all places for the slaughter. We have been notified that two South African nationals have died in this ongoing conflict between Palestine and Israel. Today we are facing a great humanitarian, a very dire humanitarian situation in Gaza. Carrying mattresses and personal belongings, residents of Gaza City were seen walking south on Friday after Israel ordered more than a million people to leave the northern half of the Gaza Strip within 24 hours. The health system is on the brink of collapse. Morgues are overflowing. Eleven healthcare staff have been killed while on duty. The flood of people arriving in the south has stretched resources that were already strained to a breaking point. has Israel's back and we're going to be working on this all through the day and beyond. We've called on the international community, the United Nations and all other concerned international bodies to make sure that peace is installed in Palestine and that the Israeli government is directed at withdrawing this command of getting people out of the northern part of Gaza. Right, many thanks to Tropical Producers for that montage. We've got limited time. Let's get straight into our discussions. What does the immediate future hold for 
Israel as well as Palestine and given the historical context what can we learn in terms of solutions my guest uh, tonight Professor Farid Isak board member of Africa for Palestine thank you very much indeed class Mohomole uh, head coordinator at Africans for Peace thank you very much indeed for your time uh, Monica uh, Genya uh, Kenya, sorry, uh, project manager at the Doctors Without Borders, and virtually we have Dr. Intia Suleiman, founder chair of Gift of the Givers. We also have our digital audience. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Maybe I can start with Dr. Suleiman uh, first. Uh, Doc, your organization has had a presence in that region for about 14 years now. We know that movement is an issue, security is an issue. Um, what is your team learning at this hour? Oops, Dr. Sullivan, can you hear me? All right, it seems that we are having a bit of an issue with Dr. Sullivan. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to pick it up uh, with him in a short while. Professor Isak, maybe I can start with you then. Um, when you hear what has been said in terms of the build-up to this, it's been a week, thousands killed. Um, where do you see the solution here? Uh, well, the one is the question of the build-up. Mm -hmm. uh, the build-up hasn't happened over the week. The build-up has been happening for more than two decades. Mm -hmm. um, as for where do things go from here, um, that really entirely depends on the quote-unquote international community. Mm -hmm. And it is in, in a much smaller measure being determined by the Palestinian people themselves. Um, I do think that the crisis at the moment is essentially a humanitarian mm -hmm. crisis and it must be addressed at that level. And at the same time, uh, any response that is limited to the humanitarian will really tantamount to sprinkling some perfume over a mm. heap of cow dung mm. in the hope of, uh, that the smell will disappear. Mm. It's just not going to do anything to seriously advance uh, justice and peace mm. uh, in that part of the world. Monica, what, what's your team learning on the ground in terms of access to the affected areas? Well, we are finding it very hard to access our patients. Um, we have 300 colleagues in, um, in Gaza, and uh, we're not sure as to the safety of all of them at this time. Um, some of them have been able to go into the south. Our international staff are in the south, and we are, are seeing that access is a huge problem, mm. and this has to be addressed immediately. Yeah. Um, the only viable way, possibly at this stage, from what we're picking up from reports, is through that rougher border. Um, you know, take us behind the scenes in terms of how do you get in there with safe passage? Who do you negotiate given this current state of play? Well, at the moment, we're finding it really hard to negotiate um, any kind of safe passage mm. for anyone. And, and we have been calling for the Rafah border crossing mm. to be open so that we can um, uh, see to the safety of our patients, get proper evacuation routes so people can flee to safety if they choose to, and we can get some medical supplies in so that we can um, access the patients who need it the mm. most. Plus, your assessment of what has happened over the last week or so, Death on both sides. Yeah, of course. Um, people are hurting. Mm. What needs to happen now in order to mitigate, in order to ameliorate the situation? I think what we needs to happen now is to get Hamas to drop the weapons. We need to start at that point. Uh, if we get Hamas to be able to drop the weapons and be willing to negotiate, I think Israel has offered itself in the past to 
negotiate, and we haven't seen that from the part of Hamas. And we need to address Hamas uh, maybe at a level of uh, a terrorist organization. But because uh, in this conflict, we always look at it as a, as a political organization. But if we address Hamas as a terrorist organization, then we can get to understand who we're negotiating with. But we get them to drop their weapons, then we can start the negotiations. What, what are we negotiating here? Is it land? Is it control? What are we talking about? Of course, while we negotiate, we need to negotiate a way forward. Uh, which involves the land, which involves the leaders, which involves how parties are going to operate. Think of the parties on their own, they will decide what's going to work for them. Um, people always negotiated two states, or some are saying one state, some are saying maybe three states will uh, work, considering that the West Bank and Gaza are in two different uh, spaces. But what needs to work here is for the parties to get together on a table and negotiate and come up with a solution for themselves. Mm. What happened in South Africa in the Cordesa negotiations? No one came through with the suggestion. South Africans on their own set and decided on what's going to work for themselves. So, and they came up with a solution uh, that sort of benefited majority of the South Africans. Same thing can happen in the Middle East. Uh, Prof, before I go to Dr. Suleiman, I mean, when you hear what Klaus is saying in terms of negotiation, and you heard what Sophie Mokwena was saying, is that some are saying the two-state solution is dead at this stage. How do we kickstart this negotiation? Uh, well, um, uh, the two-state solution is not just dead in terms of current development, it has been dead for a long time. Um, the only option for that part of the world is, if one wants to talk about a South African perspective of it, it is the creation of a non-racial society uh, that is not based on uh, ethnic chauvinism or nationalisms, but it is based on uh, one person, one vote in a democratic society. I don't for the life of me see how any society can be divided on the basis of race, on the base of ethnicity, not in the 21st century. And so the idea of a particular state for a particular uh, blood-lined mm. crowd, it is just, apartheid wasn't good for South Africa. Mm. There's no reason why it should be good for uh, that part of the uh, Middle East. Right. Um, let me bring in Dr. Suleiman now. I hope your line is uh, better. Doc, apologies for that. Uh, I was saying at the top, your organization has been in the region there, I understand, for about 14 years now. Um, what is your team learning on the ground in terms of movement, in terms of security? Uh, it's not 14 years. It is since 2014, which is nice. In terms of security, the team says the most difficult time they've ever had. We've, we've been involved in 2009. We've been involved in 2000. We've been involved last year, 2002. We've been involved for the war too. This nightmare is part of what's We can't move around. Dangerous. Doc, I, I, I do apologize. Uh, maybe we can. Uh, we need to redial you. Uh, I think it's a network issue. Uh, we, we're not getting a, a clear line to you. But okay, uh, the team will work on it. We'll, we'll, we'll try to get back to you in a short while, Doc. Um, Prof, I, I just wanted to ask with regards to if, if both Jews and Arab Muslims claim the land and it dates back many, many years. How do you get to a viable solution? 
Well, it's not a question of Jews claiming the land and Arabs claiming the land. Uh, the truth is that there has been an uninterrupted Jewish presence throughout known history in that part of the land. But there's never been a sole Jewish claim to ownership of the land. And Palestinians have also got a claim to the land for an uninterrupted period. So one competition, one historical competition with another one, that's not the way out. Mm. The, the, the way out is that all people who inhabit that land must, with each other, find a way of living together in a shared land. A land. Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, debate and a discussion uh, from the South African Broadcasting Corporation earlier today on uh, the Palestinian question light of uh, developments uh, since uh, October the 7th. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website uh, at the Pan-African Radio Network, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out with the music of the John Coltrane Quartet uh, with the track entitled Ascension. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.